0: So Jason and I recently went with some friends to see a new play in Berkeley called Eureka Day. Okay? The play is set at a private school in Berkeley, you want to take that? Um, where everyone's voice is supposed to be valued. Every decision by the board of parents leading the organization is made by consensus. There are no votes. They want everyone to be on the same page, talk everything out until they get there. There are no gender pronouns used in the school. There's lots of signage and conversation about how all have the right to feel safe at school. That's a core part of the school's ethos in this play. And then there's an outbreak of the mumps. Turns out about half of the school doesn't vaccinate, and there's never been a policy about it. Chaos ensues as the board tries to deal with the situation. They shut down the school temporarily, and then they decide to have a community forum via Facebook Live about how to, uh, you know, how to move things forward. They do it online to avoid further exposure. And I actually found a video online of a trailer for the show that kind of shows you a little bit of the drama that ensues there, so we're going we're gonna to watch that for a moment. Can we, he can or we go she back and will be excluded from audio. school. How many kids are we talking about here? Of immunity to mumps. He or she will be excluded from school. How many kids are we talking about here, Don, that are uh, unvaccinated? It's quite a few. Really? This is a great moment for a community-activated conversation. Mm. So let's all try and remember to keep our conversation supportive and truthful. Helpful. There's no, there's no real benefit to getting the vaccine at this time. Well, there is. A, I mean, isn't the benefit of getting it that then you would have the immunity? Well, you can get the natural immunity from just having the disease. But for that, you have to like have the disease. Look, let's just, let's just. Um, I want to ask everyone who's participating in this just, just to let's just take our fingers off the keyboards. I knew this was a risk when I chose not to immunize. I went into this with eyes wide open. Choices have consequences. I'm sorry, can we not frame this in terms of sin and punishment? This is not how we talk to each other in this community. Okay, I don't know if you could you all see the little Facebook messages? Yeah, there was like 20 minutes of that. It just kept escalating. And you were like, wow. And it was so familiar to anyone who's ever been in an online conversation, right? I think, essentially, what this play highlights is the real tension inherent in creating, even among really well-meaning people, places that feel like a safe space for a diverse group of families, right? Core to the question, core to like the tension is this question, like, whose safety do we protect? The safety of kids? who might be vulnerable to the virus, even if they've had the vaccine because it doesn't work 100% of the time. So part of the play is that one of the children of a board member who is vaccinated, that child ends up contracting mumps and loses his hearing due to a complication. It's serious stuff. But what about the safety of families who believe that vaccinations do more harm than good? And they have their own stories to tell about why they got there. Do they also deserve safety? How do these things coexist? The play was funny, it was familiar, it was poignant, and it was relevant, I think, to the deeper questions that a lot of us are wrestling with in all kinds of ways today. How do we create safe, diverse spaces that are truly both, when it seems that our natural tendencies are often to isolate ourselves with groups like us when we feel most unsafe? Social psychologists have talked about something that's called social identity theory, and that basically says that our self-esteem is often tied very closely to our group membership, okay? And in order to cultivate more self-esteem, we tend to gravitate to and form groups with people who are similar to us, and then we kind of build up our own concept of how great that group is, and we reinforce our own self-concept by doing that. And there's a certain part of that that's fine. Over time, though, it can become negative, right? As we define ourselves, our own group, over and against others. I feel like we've seen this a lot in the last couple of years as our political conversations have become more heated, right? Our group dynamics have become more charged. People have retreated to groups that they perceive as more safe, but they tend to be less diverse, right? I think clearly churches have often participated in this. Most of our churches are not very diverse, and they do tend to reinforce group identity. And it's powerful. There's a reason that people join particular communities. It, again, it reinforces the self-identity, and they, they need people to help that. But at times, it then also kind of creates greater divisiveness. Well, I'm bringing this up in the context of wrapping up a teaching series that we've been doing throughout the spring, on living out Jesus-centered faith that I'm calling It's Complicated. And in this series, we've been exploring real tensions and paradoxes, kind of inherent in living out Jesus-centered faith, places where we often end up striking an either-or position where actually maybe a both-and understanding could be more helpful. And so I want to end this series considering how we organize and how that might actually require some nuance from us that is maybe rare to see. So I started off highlighting these tensions inherent in valuing both safety and diversity and that is relevant at Haven because it's core to what we've kind of articulated as our mission, all right? We have this image we talk about sometimes. I have there's a picture of it in the back if you want to see it more up close. But it's basically holding these three things in tension: being a space that's Jesus-centered, safe, and diverse. That we say that we want to be a community that holds those together. And part of that means that we agree that we need to share the burden of creating safety for all, rather than just creating a space that's safe for some and asking others, particularly folks on the margins, to come on the terms of the majority culture. We've talked a lot about that, and that sounds good in theory. But truthfully, I think as like Eureka Day, the play points out, it can be a lot harder to live in practice. How do we honor the belief that we all need healthy multicultural community, along with the need to create safety for people that's often hard to experience in mixed group spaces? I want to share two examples of where I think this can play out in church contexts. Uh, They both come from online articles I found this week. So the first, and I have the, the people who spoke them, I'll put their pictures up just so you can going to hear their voice a little bit while while we do this. So the first is written by a gnaim game Jamar Tisby. He's the president of The Witness, a black Christian collective, and he wrote this article um, titled The Downside of Integration for Black Christians. So this is what he says. We want places to lament when the next unarmed black person is killed by law enforcement. We want amens from people who understand what it's like when a classmate or coworker insinuates that your presence is only due to affirmative action. We want to say, that's my jam, when someone mentions a 90s R&B song, clearly the best era for the genre. We want to talk about what it's like to be a black believer in a white Christian congregation. But how can black people get this kind of communal strength when all of our gatherings are integrated? Integration itself is not the problem. The issue is that in many integrated settings, many of the white people don't understand black experiences. They won't understand the struggle, understand the references, or feel the pain and the pleasure of being black. And as much as we love our white brothers and sisters, we don't always want to have to explain the essence of being black. In integrated settings with white Christians, we have to unpack basic ideas about the black experience. We have to talk about privilege, white supremacy, systemic racism, black culture, food, music, these explanations are exhausting. It's hard to have a 401 level solidarity with people who are on a 101 level of racial awareness. Makes sense? Here's another perspective from a guy named Kevin Garcia. He's a blogger, podcaster, a worship leader in Christian contexts, and he also happens to be gay. His article is called, When It Hurts to Worship. I remember the words to the song we were singing, come as you are. We don't even mean that, he thought. Not for a second is that true about our church. At the time, I was still at one of those nice, pseudo-progressive, feel-good, mostly white churches who's doing sort of okay at the racial justice conversation, doing sort of okay when it comes to women in leadership, not doing anything when it came to including the LGBTQ community. In fact, they were doing subtle things to keep us at arm's length. And I was told when I started that I'd never hit a glass ceiling, that my gifts were wanted, that my story was important, that I would be able to help guide the conversation around queer inclusion. However, when I started to lead a small group, I quickly was told they couldn't let me do that because it would be the staff of our church making a statement we aren't prepared to make yet. Imagine the shock of my newly out, overly trusting, naive little heart. The next week, I still showed up to church because I was determined to not let this obstacle keep me from being in community with God's people. This was my space, too. I joined the church like everyone else, but all of a sudden, it was like the curtain had been torn in two. I could see the stifled little man pulling a bunch of levers, pushing buttons to make fire and smoke screens, manufacturing emotional moments instead of leading people to actual repentance. Come as you are. I did, and I was rejected for it. Since then... Every time I hear that phrase or catch a sliver of that melody, it pains me. It reminds me of what I've lost by following Jesus out of the closet, and I hate that because I'm a worship leader. I'm someone who loves nothing more than to create experiences that people can engage with the Spirit in a way that's unencumbered by the world or the room we're in or even by me, the person leading it. Honestly, it was through worship I was able to step fully into my queer identity. It was worship that helped heal a lot of the anger that I hold, but there are certain songs that I just can't sing anymore certain songs that I can barely even stand to listen to Christians of color who feel like integrated spaces can be exhausting queer Christians who feel triggered by the same songs that bring many non queer Christians connection with God I've now been doing some version of this Haven project for going on four years and I can say firsthand, these stories are our stories. Okay? We, I've heard some version of them from a number of folks through these years who've called us their church home. It's hearing stories like this that have helped shape the vision we articulate of prioritizing, needing to grow, and being safe and diverse and Jesus-centered. But it leaves this tension, I feel. Must we always give up safety to pursue diversity? Or must we give up some diversity to pursue safety? What if it didn't have to be one or the other, that we have like safe monocultural spaces or less safe, diverse spaces? What if part of creating safety and diversity together is actually embracing a both-and men- both mentality in terms of the way we organize? Maybe the answer is that all of us, particularly in a world as charged and divisive as ours is right now, we all need both clusters of less diverse safety as well as spaces where we can have positive cross-cultural experiences and be a part of a diverse community. Maybe rather than creating division, holding both models alongside each other could actually empower us to walk closer to a reality of true safety in all of our diverse interactions. That's what we're going to consider this morning, okay? So the question here in a Jesus-centered community, is there a biblical case for that? What might that be? Well, first I'd say we often underappreciate, I think, the amount of cross-cultural work that the early church was doing to make the shift from being completely monocultural, Jewish, to being multicultural, including communities that were both Jewish and non-Jewish, Gentiles. This wasn't just about whether or not the men's private parts looked the same, okay? This is about living and worshiping alongside people who are culturally different. That was very complicated. Some would celebrate Sabbath in a way that really impacted the ways they lived communally. Others didn't. Some ate meat very freely others believed that was idolatrous that makes eating together pretty complicated in romans paul has to argue to both groups not to separate over what he calls these disputable matters not to judge one another for doing the wrong thing and that ethic of kind of choosing to like let each person kind of follow their own way forward What they feel is best unto God is really at the heart of what the Blue Ocean Network we're a part of considers its distinctive of being third way when it comes to controversial theological issues. But when we talk about this idea of simply coexisting alongside one another and not judging one another, we can still fail to take, I think, seriously the communal nature of what Paul was actually asking. It wasn't simply an individual, you know what, you do you, you do you, I'll do me. There was a communal impact to this call to be multicultural. It meant that there was probably within the church multiple communities, presumably worshiping as they saw fit together, but somehow connected to one another in a larger group that held their diversity in unity. It had to be a both-and experience. There's one place that I think Paul makes the clearest case for a diverse inclusion that both makes space to recognize difference and maintains unity in the whole. And it's a famous passage. You probably have heard it before, but I want to look at it briefly to consider what it might mean for us in this question of maintaining both safety and diversity. Okay, so we come to 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. And if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Whereas our more respectable members don't need this. But God has so arranged the body giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body. But the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. Okay, this is a big passage. There could be a lot we could look into, But I'm just going to um, unpack two ideas that I think are relevant to our conversation. The first, and you can fill in the blanks here if you want, if you have a sheet and you want to do that. The first is that everyone has more than one identity. Everyone has more than one identity. You hear it in the last phrase Paul says here, now you're the body of Christ and individually members of it. You have a corporate identity. That is the body of Christ. You have an individual identity. You are a hand, you are a foot, you are a finger, you are a toenail, whatever it is, right? There has to be distinctiveness for this total body to function well. It's not about becoming monocultural. What do I mean by this? Let me introduce you to Christina Cleveland. She's a social psychologist, writer, professor, Jesus follower, who writes about this in her book, Disunity in Christ. It's really excellent. I recommend it. Um, and so in her book, she references the work of Lowell Gertner and Jack DeVideo, who are researchers in the field of social psychology, and they study group dynamics. And these researchers suggest that it, it actually is really important for us to form diverse communities that bring people together from different groups so they can associate as one group. That's an important experience for all humans to be a part of because if members, they say, if members of different groups are induced to conceive of themselves as a single group rather than as two completely separate groups, attitudes towards former out-group members will become more positive through the cognitive and motivational forces that result from in-group formation, a consequence that could increase the sense of connectedness across group lines. It's an academic way of saying what I think makes sense, right? It's natural for people to feel more affinity with folks in their groups. So if we expand who's in our group with us, we'll begin to feel more affinity with those people. That is true. That's why building diverse communities like we're trying to do here is good and important. Still, the same reacher- researchers have found it's, it's important not to swing to the other side of becoming colorblind or perhaps cultureblind, blind trying to erase or ignore difference, okay, that that always ends up harming people. And it usually is folks who've been historically marginalized. Many Christians tend to do this by calling on our identity in Christ as kind of the end of the conversation. Okay? They'll point to verses like Galatians 3.28. I'll put that up for you. They apply it in ways that I don't believe were actually intended by Paul. Galatians 3.28 says this, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, I don't see you as black. I don't see you as queer. You're not female. We're all the same in Christ Jesus, is what people say. But that isn't what Paul meant. I don't believe it. He was not saying that our different identities cease to exist. Once we are in Christ, he was saying that the different identities were not grounds for social hierarchies in the community of Jesus. In the same way, they were grounds for social hierarchies anywhere else. This is another fill in the blank. Okay? He was not saying that those different identities, he was saying they were not grounds for, for social hierarchies in the community of Jesus. In the same way there were grounds for social hierarchies anywhere else. Anywhere else, you are put in a different category if you are female than if you are male. If you are slave than if you are free. If you are Gentile, you have less access. He's saying that doesn't happen here. We are all one in Christ Jesus. There's no hierarchy. He's confronting systems of oppression, but he's not obliterating identity. There's a difference. How could we do both? How can you confront the systems of oppression without obliterating the identity? Well, Christina will point us back to these social psychologists, Garrettner and DeVidio, who say that, they, that rather than rejecting our small cultural identities, individuals should maintain, they say, dual identities, identifying with a smaller cultural group within the context of a common group. Does that make sense? These social psychologists say it works better If you can maintain a dual identity, having a smaller cultural group to identify with within the context of a common, more multicultural group. In Christina Cleveland's words, the idea of a common in-group identity that trumps all subordinate identities might seem to suggest that we should relinquish our cultural identities and ignore our cultural differences. However, to do that would actually violate the metaphor of the body of Christ, in which each group expresses its unique perspective and function in coordination with other groups and in submission to the head, Jesus Christ. There has to be distinctiveness for the body to function well. We can't all be the same part. Where would the body be, Paul says? We have to not only allow for but celebrate the differences among us, in order for the whole body to work as it should. Recognizing that our identities are complex and multifaceted is what intersectionality is all about, right? Intersectionality, we have it up here, is the idea that multiple identities intersect to create a whole that is different from the component identities. That happens for all of us. The idea that multiple inter- identities intersect to create a whole that's different from a component identity. So I am a follower of Jesus. That is a core part of my identity that may at times trump others when needed. But I'm also a woman. I'm straight. I'm white. I'm a pastor and a musician, a wife, a mother. I'm in my 40s. I live in Berkeley. All of these are parts of my identity they make me the unique part of the body that I am they also mean that I may be located near other parts of the body that I may at times work in concert with okay I'm gonna extend the metaphor here a little bit the finger isn't just part of the body right it's part of the hand it works with other fingers with the thumb with hand muscles, to do things that the toes are really not directly connected to or involved in, right? That doesn't mean that the toes and fingers are like completely separate and not part of the same body. As Paul said, even if they don't perceive how they are connected, they are, they don't get to decide that, right? But some of the body parts might find themselves actually functioning on a daily basis more with parts that are located in proximity with them to help them do the things they are called to do. And that's fine that's part of their respective identities right i've spent a lot of time with other parents with young kids in the last decade than i ever had before it may be my primary social group at this point it's not because i'm harboring a bias towards people who don't have children at least I'm, i'm trying not to i also love spending time with my friends that don't have kids But ultimately, a lot of my time is there in this season, both for practical and also emotional reasons. Practically, because our lives just happen to intersect a lot more, right? On the schoolyard, at kids' practices, at the PTA meetings. Emotionally, because it's helpful to be with other people who are in that same life space as you, who face similar challenges, who have someone to talk about, about how the kids are disturbing your sleep and vomiting in the car at inopportune moments and and also breaking your heart open, doing something adorable that reminds you that they're growing up all too fast and too slow at the same time. To be able to process that while you're guzzling coffee on the playground with someone who gets it because they're living that reality too, it reminds me I'm not alone. I think we all need our versions of that. So the first point, we all have more than one identity, and we need space to maintain a dual identity, or more or even multi more than dual, right? Places to live into both sets of our identity: the corporate and the less corporate. Th- the second thing I want to unpack is this idea. Some parts of our identity require greater care. Some parts of our identity require greater care. Paul, in his passage, seems to identify the reality that not all the various parts of the body, although they're distinctive and different, they are not all the same in terms of what they need. They have different needs, requiring different levels of concern. At least part of this concern, he seems to imply, has to do with how these parts of the body are regarded right? He says, on the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor and our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. All right, I think we have to be careful here with translation. I don't believe Paul's saying that certain parts or people or groups actually are less honorable or are more weak. He's talking about how they're perceived, right? But he's also naming clearly that all parts aren't the same. Some body parts, some people, some groups, are more vulnerable than others. And he seems to say that those parts that have been historically given less respect need more support so they can all receive the care they need to thrive. I think this applies to our conversation, too. Particularly for marginalized people, in our moment in history where safe, diverse spaces have not been the norm, I think it can particularly be helpful to have a safe, less diverse space within the larger group to connect and be free. And it's important that we recognize the need for this as valid. Not all parts have the same needs because not all are coming from the same experiences, of marginalization oppression i'm going to read one more quote from that article from jamar tisby the the author who wrote on the downside of integration for black christians he says black christians just like any black people in america need communities that will affirm their dignity and restore the strength they expend just to exist in this nation gathering in a mono racial setting is only temporary Afterwards, we go back out into a world where we are the minority and where our presence is often considered a problem. It's impossible to survive as a black person in America without rejuvenation from people with shared experiences. We retreat into racially specific communities with the intention of coming back out stronger and more prepared to engage across the color line. It's sinful to segregate out of hate for other people or with a desire for permanent separation. But black community empowers us to live more racially integrated lives, not less. With a solid sense of self and the confidence in others' support of us, black Christians can engage a world built around whiteness with courage and patience. White people may never fully comprehend the downside of integration for black people. We can only hope our white brothers and sisters will assume and believe the best of us and celebrate our attempts at forging black community instead of impeding them. Although black people are going to find a way to gather one way or another, the understanding from white Christians would facilitate racial harmony. What would it mean for us, Haven, to honor the reality that there are subgroups within our group that might need more space to experience deeper connection in our midst with others whom they share a dual identity, particularly those who have not always experienced welcome in churches like ours in the past. Rather than needing folks to justify and defend that need, as Jamar is trying to do, What if we were just a community that had the sensitivity to recognize that need and bless it? What if we could honor and respect the need out of care and concern rather than fighting it because not all of our presences would be helpful in every space? All of this ultimately is grounded in care for the body. That's what Paul says. He envisions treating certain parts with extra care so that there may be no dissension within the body, he says, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. What if we didn't have to take it personally when we were told, I need a space where your presence isn't helpful right now? What if we could say, I bless that because I want you to thrive. And if you suffer, I suffer. We honor the needs of the parts of our body differently because we care for all of this body and we recognize the diverse needs as our own. We often talk here about being centered set versus bounded set as a core part of how we understand what it means to be a Jesus-centered community. If you're not familiar with this metaphor, here's just a quick encapsulation. Okay? Bounded set kind of says we organize, you're kind of in or out right there's some sort of characteristics that we share and often in churches it's like have you been baptized have you prayed this certain prayer do you believe these things about god then you're in the group and if you don't then you're out and our goal is to try to get more people to jump in right and we say in this community and other communities that want to be centered set actually we're just much more interested in believing that everyone's on a journey and at any given moment you're going away or towards number of things. But if we're saying Jesus, at any given moment, all of us are moving towards our way. And how can we be a community that helps people turn their arrows and move more in that direction of Jesus? It's not an identity. We have many cultures, many beliefs, many journeys, but Jesus is our center. I still think this is true. But I wonder if what we're talking about today adds adds like another layer to it, okay? That as we travel towards that center It might be helpful sometimes to travel in clusters, right? That we all might need a little group around us at times. And sometimes that group might look like a bounded set. And that can be confusing. How can both be true? I think what's important to remember is the function that the clusters serve. Are they there, you know, kind of I talked about group identity in the beginning. We join a group to kind of reinforce our own self-image. Are they there to kind of make us feel like, okay, we're a part of something? Or do these clusters serve not as ends in themselves, not the groups as the focus, but as tools to help us navigate towards the center, to help us actually live a centered set faith, a journey towards Jesus, with the hope that the further along we get in that journey over time, the closer we get to the center and all the other people making that journey too. And those clusters become less and less necessary because we're a part of a bigger multicultural thing. Does that make sense? That's just kind of what I'm wondering. I'm pondering as we think about this. So what's the call for Haven? I have two things that I think, if, if this is true, what I'm positing, what are the implications for our community The first is to consider the clusters we are in need of and our own roles in cultivating them. Consider the clusters we are in need of and our own roles in cultivating them. Honestly, the truth is we are at a unique transition point in this community. We could not have had this conversation a year ago because there just weren't enough of us to really talk about doing anything that wasn't all of us there. That's true. But we're growing. We're in a season of growth. And that's exciting, but it also means that there's kind of these new, uh, I think we do need to start having a conversation around putting some structures in place in the months to come um, so we can continue to serve the diverse needs of the people who are finding us. Currently, I think it can be easy to enter our space, and depending on the Sunday you come, wonder if there's genuinely a place for you to connect. Just one example, we've been growing in the Families with Kids department, particularly lately, since, particularly since we hired Joe, which is awesome, right? But folks who come in without kids might wonder if this is a space for them, right? Even though we actually have more people in that category than we did when we first started, probably, but it's still not always clear that that is true. And I think people wonder, is this a community for me? The fact that it happens, and I've heard that from multiple places, means it's we need to cultivate more. So yes, I think we still need diverse spaces like this. Perhaps our shelter dinners, our game nights, our second Saturdays, whatever, where folks can connect with people that might not hang out otherwise. But I think it's also fine and good to acknowledge that as we grow, we're going to have spaces within Haven, and we can really think intentionally about it as opposed to it just like kind of randomly happening, um, where we can focus on connecting with smaller groups that have proximity to our particular body parts and build connection there, right? As your pastor, I want to bless and affirm that need. And I want to ask each of you to consider what kind of community spaces you feel called to, you feel in need of, and perhaps you feel invited to help create and facilitate. Because I can't do them all. That's where we're getting. We're getting to the place where it's not just about what Leah can hold in terms of how we gather, right? It would not be appropriate for me to lead a person of color only group, but that might be a good thing for us to have. It would not be appropriate for me to lead a queer only group, but that might be a good thing for us to have. A group for people without kids. That's already kind of starting to happen. Tweens. We have like a number of tweens emerging. They need something. And we may need a group for, yes, exactly. elliots it's it's not going to be alone. (laughs) We need perhaps a group of parents of tweens where we can gather and talk about the unique concerns there. It wouldn't be appropriate for me to facilitate all those things, but if there's a felt need in the community for gatherings like that, we need people who are willing to serve to bring those to life. And if you feel like maybe that's you, I can resource you. I can brainstorm with you what that looks like. Are we talking an actual thing where there's going to be a schedule or you're just going to be connected to these people and and kind of keeping an eye on them? I can uh, pray with you, help discern alongside you. I would love to do that. But for this model to move forward, it's going to mean more diverse leadership, which I think is exciting. So we're considering the clusters we're in need of and our own roles in cultivating them. And then secondly, we need to look for ways to honor and partner with members of the larger body of Christ. It's easy to hate on other groups. People do it all the time. And sadly, the church isn't often very different, right? Particularly those we don't agree with. Now, I'm not saying, sometimes it is needed to be able to speak clearly when we see our brothers and sisters doing things that we think actually bring harm, and to be able to name that. But we must remember that ultimately our identity in the body means we cannot dismiss the other parts. We don't get that power. We don't get the power to say we don't belong. We don't get the power to say they don't belong. Even if they have dismissed us, And I'll be honest, I know a number of folks are here because they have been dismissed by the rest of the church Has said, you don't belong. You cannot be a queer Christian. That's not a thing. And yet we say, you know what? You don't have that power to take away my identity in Christ. Only Jesus has that. Ultimately, we are all a part of the body, whether we function together on a regular basis or not. And in the same way that we want to build clusters of safety and more diverse experiences, this has to be true in the greater body too. Now, I am aware it has to be done with care and concern. It's complicated. We have to recognize that our differences in identity impact our own sense of safety, moving into more mixed spaces with other followers of Jesus. That's real, right? But I think there are places And justice work, community service, etc., where we can work together, where we can all be a part of something um, in our community to build cooperation within the body that could be a necessary component of the body healing rather than continuing to be a part of the bloody history of the body's own self-inflicted wounds that come from internal division. So for all of us, it could begin with prayer, praying for those in other faith communities. And I, have all, I encourage you to do that, and maybe we'll do a little bit today. Um, but I also have ideas about places in our community where we can connect with other folks. So if there are some of you who feel particularly like that's something you feel called to be a part of, that kind of bridge work, I'd love to talk to you about that. The good news in all of this is we're not alone in this. Ultimately, I believe we are worshiping a God who's more committed to helping us live and thrive in united diversity than any of us are. And our group identity, as people who share the same spirit, that's powerful. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4. I'm going to end with this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in all amen amen let's take a moment.